0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for the first of two podcasts is Gene Kilborn. Uh, Gene is an internationally recognized... Uh, expert and has done groundbreaking work on the image of women in advertising. And she's done critical studies of alcohol and tobacco advertising in particular and most recently has turned some of her attention to the issue of food, which we'll talk about in the second podcast. Her films, lectures, and television appearances have been seen by millions of people throughout the world and have truly influenced a number of generations of people in the way they think. She is the author of the award-winning book, Can't Buy My Love? How Advertising Changes the Way We Think and Feel, and another book called So Sexy, So Soon, The New Sexualized Childhood and What Parents Can Do to Protect Their Kids. Her prize-winning films have been based on her lectures, including one called Killing Us Softly, which is now in its fourth version, uh, done originally in the late 1970s. She also has films called Spin the Bottle and Slim Hopes. Uh, she's been called upon by government officials, frequently is on television, and is, as I said, internationally known for the powerful and persuasive way she talks about these issues. Gene, I'm delighted to have you here.
0: I'm delighted to be here, Kelly. Thank you.
1: So your work started with the way the media sells tobacco and alcohol. And um, the first version of Killing Us Softly was done in 1979, as I remember you saying. And back at that time, there really weren't other people working on this and thinking about it. So you came along first. What got you interested?
0: I actually started by collecting um, images of women in advertising. So in the late 60s, I started looking at ads. And my interest in that came from many things. My involvement in the women's movement uh, my interest in stereotypes, but also some experiences that I'd had as a model. I went to Wellesley College, and when I graduated from Wellesley, I had to go to secretarial school to get a job, and uh, the the options were very limited. So I could be a secretary, I could be a waitress, or, you know, I could be a model and make a thousand dollars a day. So it was very seductive, but it was also kind of soul-destroying. And I didn't, I did it off and on for a while, and then I started looking at the images and thinking about the whole idea of the image of beauty and who decides and who wins and who loses. And I clipped out ads and I put them on my refrigerator with magnets and then I started to see patterns in the images and put together a slide presentation on the image of women. And then a few years later, I started looking at tobacco and alcohol ads. And there were several reasons for that. I'd been addicted to tobacco and found it very hard to quit. And uh, been a lot of alcoholism in my family. I also was spending a lot of time on college campuses and I saw that the alcohol industry was really targeting kids and I began to look at their ads and the way that they targeted people.
1: And so what sort of themes did you find as you began looking at these images?
0: Well when I started looking I began really with alcohol ads and I just collected them, looked at them, tried to see what was going on and about six months into looking at them, I realized with absolute horror that the alcohol industry understood alcoholism better than any other group in the country. They really got it. They understood the loneliness that's at the heart of, of all addictions, I think. They knew which psychological cues would trigger a wish to drink, and they were using this knowledge uh, in a very sophisticated way. And as you said, nobody was looking at this in those days, and it wasn't considered an important issue. But then I started seeing how they were also targeting kids. I began to look at tobacco ads, because the tobacco industry and the alcohol industry both really depend on addiction, and they depend on getting children, because most addictions start early. So that I started looking at all of those, what kinds of themes they were using, and and also looking at the incredible influence that they had on media coverage of these health issues.
1: And so women in particular you were interested in, how were they being portrayed in the advertisements? And has that changed much over the years?
0: Well, women in general, in most ads, no, it, it actually, um, unfortunately, hasn't changed very much at all. Many of the things I talked about 40 years ago are not only still true, they're worse. For example, the, the tyranny of the ideal image of beauty, which has always been a problem, is now absolutely impossible because of Photoshop, so that we're surrounded by I- images of women who just, it has nothing to do with what a real woman can look like, and yet we all end up comparing our uh, ourselves to these images, and that I think does enormous harm to women and girls' self-esteem. Uh, The sexualization of little girls, which I started talking about a long time ago, has gotten much, much worse. I also talked about the obsession with thinness way back in the first version of Killing Us Softly, way back in 1979. And that, of course, has gotten much worse, too, primarily because of Photoshop.
1: So let's talk a little bit more about that. With with Photoshop in particular, um, you've made the point, and I'd like you to expand on this a little bit, that what you're seeing in any of these images is not the real person at all, and that you made a point about a Julia Roberts movie where... It could be that different people are different body parts in different parts of the movie. It's very interesting.
0: Yeah, it's amazing when when I show the slide of the ad for Pretty Woman and it has Julia Roberts' head, but it's somebody else's body. People really gasp because they just never occurred to them that might happen. Um, and I'm sure they use the other body. I'm sure Julia Roberts has a great body, but it's you know this one is thinner, um, maybe considered better for some reason. So they just put her head on the body. And these days they do that. Uh, they don't even actually need to do that anymore because now they can take the celebrity and they can use Photoshop to slim her down, to give her thinner thighs or a longer neck. And they can do all that with Photoshop. They don't need to actually use different parts of of different women. But the image has become idealized and artificial in a way that's um, absolutely impossible. It always was impossible, but now it's completely impossible. But the, the bad part is that This artificial, constructed, idealized image is presented to women and girls as if it's something that we could attain if we would just buy the right products and try hard enough. So we're made to feel guilty and sort of ashamed if we don't measure up to this impossible image. Well,
1: and if you think of a a movie like Pretty Woman, it could be that when there's a scene of somebody's hands, that it's not Julia Roberts' hands, as you've said, and there could be a scene showing her legs, but it may not be her legs and so so there's really nobody nobody is good enough are they
0: nobody's good enough absolutely not and in in pretty woman when when she's undressed or partially dressed that's not julia roberts It's somebody else's body and that that often happens in films because maybe sometimes the actresses don't want to you know disrobe and so they don't have to they can just have a body double
1: and you've talked about the sexualization of ads um, Mm -hmm. and how women are portrayed in the ads would you mind talking about that
0: Well, there's tremendous, uh, there's always been a lot of uh, sexualization and use of female sexuality to sell all kinds of products, Um, chainsaws, filing cabinets, you name it, Um, women's bodies draped over these products or the promise to the man that uh, if he drinks this beer or, you know, whatever, smokes this brand of cigarette, he's going to get sex, he's going to get the woman. But what's happened that's different in recent years has been the increasing sexualization of children, particularly little girls, so that little, very little girls are being presented in highly sexualized ways. And that's happening in advertising, it's also happening in TV programs like Toddlers and Tiaras. In fact, A three-year-old girl on toddlers and tiaras was dressed as the prostitute that Julia Roberts plays in Pretty Woman, dressed exactly that way, and was encouraged to strut around the stage. Three years old. So we see a lot of this. Padded bras are sold for seven-year-olds in major department stores. Uh, The Halloween costumes get more and more outrageous every year. And this is something that's increased dramatically in recent years and that I think does enormous harm to our children.
1: So now, going back at least 40 years to when you started talking mm-hmm. about this, and then in subsequent times, lots of people have joined the team uh, in terms of uh, pointing out from scientific studies how bad these influences are. Uh, the people that are concerned about feminist ways of thinking have written about this, talked about it a lot. There's just a lot more tension to it in the, out there in the world. Why is it worse rather than getting better?
0: Well <laughs> I think that we're up against very powerful forces. I mean we're up against very powerful industries that have a lot at stake in making us feel terrible about ourselves. You can't sell a lot of, you know, diet products if people know that they have a 95% failure rate. You can't sell a lot of anti-aging products if you don't make women terrified of growing older. And that these industries not only are powerful in and of themselves, but they have an enormous amount of power over the rest of the media because you really can't get accurate information from a media that depend on the goodwill of advertisers. So you're not going to get accurate health information from magazines that are studded with uh, ads, you know, for junk food and diet products and that sort of thing. You're not going to get accurate information about alcohol being the most destructive drug in the nation, you know, if if the newspaper has alcohol ads in it. So it it makes it very difficult to get uh, information out even to get basic information out. And it certainly makes it incredibly difficult to get people to look at this from a public health point of view or a public policy point of view, because these industries are so well-funded. Not many
1: people would think about that inherent conflict of interest in the media. And you're making the point, from what I understand, that you really can't count on the the media itself to do literacy about the media because of these inherent conflicts. So for example, Mm -hmm. You couldn't really count on a women's magazine to talk about how women are portrayed in such magazines because they're getting the money from the ad campaigns in the magazine to do that and from the food companies and tobacco and alcohol and the like right and they really depend on this
0: they absolutely depend on it so you're right you're not gonna get that kind of coverage and uh, and they also these industries have enormous enormous power in government because these days unfortunately In America, I don't think it's true in any other country, our politicians have to raise huge amounts of money in order to run for office. And what that money is for is advertising. I mean, that's what it's for. And so where are they going to get it? They get it from huge corporations. And then they end up beholden to these corporations. We shouldn't be surprised. And it makes it very difficult then for politicians on either side of the aisle to make decisions that are based uh, on public health rather than corporate profit. And so they don't.
1: One of the themes that you brought up in the way tobacco and alcohol, and then we'll talk about food shortly, mm-hmm. um, are advertised is they they capture this um, theme of loneliness or, or non-connectedness that people might be experiencing. Can you explain how they go about doing that?
0: Right. I think that the um, advertisers do an enormous amount of research, psychological research, and it's gotten more and more sophisticated. These days they put electrodes on people's brains and they can tell, you know, which part of our brain lights up and that sort of thing. So they really understand addiction. They know that um, at the heart of every addiction is, is loneliness. And that the addict feels in a relationship with whatever the substance is that he or she is addicted to. So when I smoked, for example, I felt that my cigarettes were my best friends. You know, I didn't think of them as my assassins. The alcoholic feels that without alcohol, he'd put a gun to his head. But the alcohol, of course, is the gun. Uh, But the alcohol and tobacco industries play on this by offering us um, a relationship with the product. And recently, with alcohol ads, for example, it used to be that you... You know, there'd be an ad for beer, and there'd be a pretty woman, and the idea would be that the guy would drink the beer and get the woman. But now, the bottle becomes the lover, so that we're encouraged to feel that if we have this drink, we're actually going to be in a relationship with this product. And it's very sophisticated, the way that they do it, and, and really is based on this extraordinary knowledge of what goes on in the, in the heart and soul of an, al- an addict. Um
1: so again looking over time when you begin looking at these things in the 1970s and then you think about what tobacco and alcohol ads look like today you mentioned they're more sophisticated based on more research that the companies are doing are you seeing any signs of improvement at all in these
0: Oh absolutely not because the the well the only sign of improvement is that people are somewhat more aware of what's going on particularly with the tobacco industry and this means that uh the tobacco industry can't target uh, children quite as blatantly as it used to, let's say. They do a lot now with the Internet, a lot with websites and gear, a whole lot of stuff with gear aimed at kids. And, of course, the tobacco industry and the alcohol industry are both um, very heavily pushing their products in other countries. They're 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 not doing as well as they used to in this country, so they're going into other countries and really pushing them. Now,
1: <laughs> you um, have made the point that companies because they're profiting so massively mm-hmm. from this that you can't really expect them to come around and all of a sudden get religion and see mm-hmm. that they're doing bad things and change on that grounds, but that laws can change these things in some cases. Mm-hmm. And I know the women's um, portrayal of being ultra-thin in fashion magazines and things like that has been addressed in some countries through legislative acts and the way that the industry is required to do things. Would you mind mm-hmm. explaining some of those?
0: Sure. Israel is the most recent country to pass a law legislating that the body mass index of models has to be 18.5 or above, or the model has to have a note from a doctor saying that she's healthy. Now, this started with Madrid maybe five years ago, and a couple of other countries have followed suit, but not, not New York, not not America. Uh, so it is that's helpful. It, it, and that was the first step that could be considered a public health step in addressing this issue, so I thought it was really significant. Uh, in the UK, there's been a bill to label photoshopped models, so that when the model is photoshopped, and they all are, there'd have to be a label saying this this model, you know, this image has been photoshopped. And neither one of none of these things are you know sufficient in and of themselves, but they're all part of a public health approach to looking at this problem and trying to come up with some public policy that will at least create a healthier environment.
1: Well, at least they're very positive signs that people are caring. Because usually it's not the politicians who get onto these things first. It's the experts who care about them deeply. And then if the politicians get interested, it's usually a pretty good sign that things might be improving in the future.
0: I think it will. And I I do take heart from what's happened with the tobacco industry in our country. You know, it's not so much in other countries. Well, developed countries, but not others. Because I remind people sometimes that it used to be when you flew on an airplane, you got cigarettes with your meal you got a meal. (laughs) Those were the days. Uh, But I remember flying and getting a little pack of maybe two cigarettes with my meal. And if someone had said to me then, 25 years from now, there'll be no smoking at all on airplanes, no smoking in pubs in Dublin or Cyborg cafes in Paris, I wouldn't have believed it. But that has happened. And it's happened because of grassroots activism, citizen activism. So that gives me hope that maybe we can bring about change in some of these other ways as well.
1: Good. Well, we'll end on that hopeful note. So thank you very much for joining us. So our guest was Gene Kilbourne, an internationally known filmmaker and author. uh, And please join us for the second of two podcasts that we'll do shortly on issues related to food. And, of course, visit our website, if you wish, at www.yalerudcenter.org, where you'll find a variety of other uh, informational pieces on food and food policy issues and links to other podcasts that have been recorded in our excellent series. Thank you.